Our scripture reading from this morning is from Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from his bond, from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the, all the glorious things that were done by him. This is God's word. I've been looking at biblical justice for about the last four Sundays, including today. We have one more Sunday next week. We started with God. The justice is part of his nature. Then we went to a psalm of praise. Praise to God for his doing justly. And then last Sunday, we were confronted by God through the prophet Isaiah for neglecting and or refusing to do justly. But you know, confrontation can, can make us get down on ourselves. And while I've heard a lot of encouragement from you over the last few weeks, I've also heard from some who've had enough of the times we're in, and a subject like this one has, uh, they feel, added weight uh, to what they are feeling in being down. Not my intention, but nonetheless can be the perception. I understand that. The gospel doesn't motivate by shaming. A social gospel will. Uh, secularism will, but not the gospel in truth. And I do feel some passion for the subject of biblical justice. I'm not any kind of activist. But if passion ever comes across to you as attack, I ask your forgiveness for that. Lord knows I don't want, ever want to be in his way with you. Um, so if you're faulting the messenger these days, please at least hear the message. To tell you the truth, I, I've been looking forward to getting this passage in Luke 13. I've dreaded this series all autumn, didn't want to preach it. It's controversial, the whole, uh, even just to say social justice with some uh, instantly you're a Marxist. And so trying to bring clarity, trying to shine a biblical spectrum of this and show how this, what this is and how it's important, um, I've dreaded it, uh, but I've been looking forward to getting to this passage because I can just kind of stand behind Jesus here and say, Lord, maybe they'll take it better coming from you. <laughs> uh, the Lord really wants us to get this, as I understand scripture, just how much our doing justly matters to him even if the preacher isn't always helpful to everyone. Um, and I've also looked forward to getting this passage because it's Jesus. And we ought to know that Jesus is for us. I hope we know that. We've read the text. Spencer just read it in Luke 13. Spencer, whose hair I envy. Um, and you have the scene. It's a Sabbath in a synagogue. And you recall the text where we were last Sunday. If you don't recall it or, or weren't here last Sunday, we were in Isaiah 58. Let me remind you, because of the scene in Luke 13 as a Sabbath, 
Let me remind you of the confrontation that we saw last week in Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, verse 13. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Think again on that verse, verse 13. If you honor the Sabbath, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, and then think of what the ruler of the synagogue said, recorded in Luke 13, verse 14. He's indignant. It's this, uh, it, it's this kind of anger that comes when something you think is right is being violated. He's indignant and he says to the people there, six days in which work ought to be done, come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. That's idle talk. If you want an example from Isaiah 58 of what talking idly is, that's idle talk of the synagogue ruler in that it missed the whole point of the Sabbath. And by the way, people talk like this. People say outrageous and irrational things when they feel increasingly insecure and desperate. I mean, the synagogue ruler cannot fully trust Jesus. His presence in his synagogue fills him with anxiety. He's heard the Pharisees and the scribes talk about Jesus, run him down. And what this synagogue ruler is watching Jesus do in his synagogue and say in his synagogue only confirms that those guys must be right. So when the ruler says what he does here in verse 14, it's a way of doubling down on what he thinks he knows for sure, that the Sabbath is a holy day and it is to be followed to the letter of the law. But he'd actually made an idol of the Sabbath. And when your idols are falling, when your idols are failing, you think and you say irrational things. As a cross-reference to what we have in Luke 13, you can look at this with me if you like. Flip back in Luke to Luke 6. Remember, we're on a Sabbath. Sabbath was huge, very important. The prophets confronted the wrong use of the Sabbath. Jesus is being accused of a wrong use of the Sabbath, therefore he cannot be a prophet. This is the mindset in the synagogue that day, but if you look back to Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, I think this is a good cross-reference for us. Luke chapter 6, verse 1, on a Sabbath... While he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now that little story is told other places in Scripture, like in Mark chapter 2. And in Mark's version, it is added, Jesus saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the scene before us in Luke 13, happening on a Sabbath, look again at verse 10 in Luke 13. He was teaching in one of the synagogues, Luke 13, 10, on the Sabbath. What would he be teaching from? 
the law and or the prophets. Passages like we were in last week in Isaiah 58. Hear it again. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. He will make you right on the heights of the earth. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. These are the kinds of things they taught in the synagogue. Now the synagogue ruler knew that passage in Isaiah. He knew Isaiah 58 cold. But he'd missed its point. And he wasn't himself keeping the Sabbath because here he is talking idly on it. Verse 14, chapter 13 of Luke. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there's six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, verse 15, you hypocrites, plural, He's speaking to everybody in the synagogue. The ruler is representative. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? How long is 18 years? Basically, how long I've been here. It's my tenure. It's in March. It'll be 18 years that I've been here. How long is that? Put another way, what Jesus is saying, don't you know Isaiah? Don't you know what the Sabbath is for? He's saying to the synagogue gathered before him, is the Sabbath simply about taking a very rigidly specified rest, or is the Sabbath also about giving rest? He's asking them, is the Sabbath simply about taking a rest, or is it also about giving rest? That is, Giving rest to those who have burdens that don't take a day off. Their burdens in life don't take a day off, so don't put them off. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And that passage I took you to a moment ago earlier in Luke, Luke chapter 6, where Jesus pronounces himself the Lord of the Sabbath, is Jesus saying, I'm the man that it was made for. You get eternal Sabbath when you come to me. And when you take my yoke upon you, then you are unable to break off the yokes of others. So let's take two angles on this passage. Jesus does justly here. Verse 16. Should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond? on the Sabbath day. That's doing justly. We've talked about that in the last three Sundays of of what goes into doing justly, the, the concern for human flourishing, reconciliation with God and with one another. And Isaiah 58 called for what Jesus did. Remember that? Jesus looses her bond, takes her out of bondage. What did Luke or Isaiah 58 say? Is this not what it means to Is this not the fast that I choose in that context? Is this not what it means to do justly, to break the the, the yoke, to let the oppressed go free? Isaiah 58 called for that. Jesus is doing it in Luke 13. Jesus did the will of God flawlessly. 
which is why in his obedience we are forever blessed. But now how do we do justly as Jesus did? Ours won't be flawless. Ours is quite limited, in fact. Nonetheless, Jesus wants us to follow him in this way of doing justly. To see the most vulnerable as most valuable to him. So two angles. First, let's talk about what doing justly, as Jesus did, requires. And then second, let's talk about what doing justly promotes. What doing justly, the way Jesus did justice, let's talk about what it requires, first of all. And then secondly, let's talk about what it promotes. Two points. First, doing justly, as Jesus did, requires a corrected value system. Jesus didn't have to have his values corrected because uh, he had no sin. Because each and every one of us are born with a sin nature, which we manifest uh, soon enough in our lives. We do have to have our value system corrected due to our sinfulness. Sin vandalizes shalom. You've heard me use that Hebrew word in a description of sin numerous times. It's, it's become a, a go-to definition of, of sin for me. Sin is the vandalizing of shalom. And shalom, Hebrew word, often gets rendered peace. But it's uh, fuller than just that. It's more than just the absence of strife. Shalom encompasses all of God's purposes, all of God's designs for human flourishing, which is what justice is all about in the large-scale consideration of what we mean when we talk about biblical justice. We're talking about human flourishing as well as human reconciliation. But because sin vandalizes shalom, works against God's purposes and designs for human flourishing, that's what sin does, that means our value system is often out of whack. And so in Christ, we get our value system corrected in order to prioritize what? The way God does things, who God is, the flourishing and reconciliation through Christ that he holds out to all people. People made in his image and likeness. The ox in this passage, the donkey, not made in his image and likeness and thereby not as important as a person. He says, verse 15, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger, lead it to water it? No one in that synagogue would let their ox or donkey go hungry or thirsty on a Sabbath day. I feed my dogs even when I uh, fast. So why would a man of God deny healing to, look what he calls her, verse 16, this daughter of Abraham. Jesus doesn't just humanize this disabled woman. He prioritizes her. He puts her in the household of Abraham. This is Abraham's daughter. She therefore gets treated as a daughter of Abraham should be. It is sweet. It is good. It is kind. How Jesus defends this daughter against her brothers denying her justice. Let the yoke stay on her another day. 
on this day in which we are supposed to be most God-focused, let's overlook our sister. Their value system was inverted. It was even perverted. Not in the leering sexual meaning of that, but in their willingness to let this vulnerable woman remain in her suffering because those in the synagogue didn't want to be troubled with it. They were there for a Bible study. Enough with all this other stuff. But when you use scripture to justify your neglect or your refusal to do justly for those who needs, whose needs don't take a day off, your religion is little more than piety. It's all devotional performance. It's believing that the better part of obedience is having the right views. And I want to have the right views. And I practice my faith devotionally. Daily Bible study and prayer early in the morning. However, there's more to it than just that. The irony of evangelicalism today is that we consider ourselves true to the Bible and yet we miss the point of studying it. I'm not trying to shame you. That's not a proper motivation for those in Christ. But I think, I think those in Christ want our faith to be more than just showing up in Bible studies not taking the importance away from Bible studies at all. But let me give you a cross-reference again. Let's bring uh, Matthew chapter 7 into this consideration. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to it. Matthew records Jesus saying this. Some of the most frightening words in the New Testament. Here they are. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, when you repeat a term like that, it's emotional intensity. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know what the epitome of evil doing and lawlessness is? It's injustice. What Jesus said is frightening, but you've got to remember what the gospel preaches to us. Orthodox doctrine and emotional investment with God, which is what the Lord, Lord means, and even activity for God doesn't mean that you have him. It doesn't mean that you want God for God. How do we show we want God for God? By going to whom he goes to. By surrendering our will to his. That's the point there. The one who enters the kingdom is the one who does the will of my father who's in heaven. He's not talking about earning it. He's talking about a surrender of yourself to him. A surrendering of your will to him. Which may have an ignition point where it begins, but it's a, it's a lifelong practice of surrendering our will to him. That's how we show that we know him. You can have straight doctrine. You can feel something in a worship service. But it's about surrendering our will to him so that we want God for God and we want the things God wants and we want whom God wants. Otherwise, my devotion may just be me using God to keep me warm and safe and dry and keep my life happy and uncomplicated. That, 
That's not the surrender of my will to, to him. That, that's keeping control of my life and asking God to cosign. Nobody in this woman, back to Luke 13, no, nobody in this synagogue could heal the woman. No, nobody could do that. Only one could. But when the ruler stood in opposition to that one, finding fault with what he was doing, even as the healed daughter of Abraham glorified God for it, standing, not bowed down anymore, but standing and lifting her hands and her face and praising God. Verse 13 says she glorified God. The ruler exhibits in what he says that he never wanted God for God. And thereby he comes under the condemnation of I never knew you. He liked religious form and function. Many do. A neat and tidy Sabbath without people's needs making life messy. Jesus calls that hypocrisy. Look, I myself am more like the synagogue ruler than I want to be. Please don't hear in this series me pressing on you what has not already been pressed on me. I stand behind this pulpit, you know, as sort of like a ruler of the synagogue in a way. But I'm really one of you. And that means my will, too, has to be surrendered again and again and again. The religious leaders who were always conflicting with Jesus, they were bound themselves. Jesus said, verse 16, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? These guys were bound themselves. And so much so, they thought Jesus was in league with Satan. Terrible, terrible confusion. But it was willingly committed. At the heart of the Sabbath is not simply to take a rest, but to give rest. Now, second, that's what doing justly requires. It requires a corrected value system. Jesus exposes the corruption in their value system. They prize their animals more than they prize the people of God. And now, second, what doing justly promotes. This has been a year of uh, reckoning in the country, as it's called by some, all the people who've taken to the streets demanding justice for those that they're, they're advocating for. A lot of those who've been taking to the streets all over our country, we've watched it on the news. Some of us have even gone down and, and seen it firsthand. A lot of them talk and act like they want a revolution. And sometimes they try to co-opt Jesus into their feelings and, and desires and demands. They, they, you know, Jesus is kind of the ultimate revolutionary. Except Jesus did not come here two millennia ago to revolutionize the social order. He came here to, to seek and save us from our sin. If you believe a social gospel in truth, if you believe, actually believe a social gospel, you believe Jesus was essentially a revolutionary who came to topple the social order, 
condemn the rich and exalt the poor. Now he did do some of that in confronting the abusive power structures of his day. But it's not why he came. He, he, wasn't, he didn't come as an anarchist. He wasn't killed because he was a political threat, though he was. He was killed because he claimed equality with God, which Jews considered blasphemy and Rome regarded with contempt because they treated Caesar as Lord. Caesar was divine. Emperor worship. Both Jew and Roman despised Jesus for who he was, who he thought of himself being, God in flesh. Not to mention both of their justice systems, the Jewish justice system and the Greco-Roman, the two greatest justice systems ever in antiquity on which our own American justice system is patterned, both systems failed Jesus miserably. But of course they had to in order for our redemption to happen. Jesus didn't come to topple the social order. He didn't come as a revolutionary though he did challenge Jewish and Roman authorities for their injustices. But that wasn't his mission, to condemn the political order of his day, to overturn it. His mission was to seek and save the lost, still is. And this is crucial to establish when we're talking about biblical justice. He did not come to send us out into the streets like, like in Les Miserables, you know. Uh, what's the little song they sing at the end? The songs of angry men, you know. Do you hear the people sing? Singing the songs of angry men. What's poured in, what you've watched on the news poured into American city streets this summer on are a lot of uh, Javert's, Javert's in the Les Miserables story. The man of law, the man who can only use shame as a motivation when what we need pouring into the streets is Jean Valjean's, the man of grace who operates for others flourishing out of the power of a reconciled life. Jesus did come to send us into the streets seeking lost people who need to know him, who need to be reconciled to him. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's his mission. So whatever else others outside of Christ are motivated to, are talking about, when they talk about justice, social justice, whatever, for those in Christ, our motivation to do justly we do it to promote joy and glory. Look at verse 17. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. The woman herself, back in verse 13, glorifies God. What doing justly promotes is joy and glory. That's our interest in it. Not toppling the social order. The joy of people flourishing, reconciled to God and neighbor, and the glory of God working through his people in such ways that the social order is affected. Jesus didn't come to change it, but once we're graced by him, guess what? Our relationship to the social order will change. We won't leave it alone. We can't. That's where the people with the needs are. We can't neglect them. We can't refuse them. Why not? Our joy in Jesus won't allow it. 
Our glorifying him will seek those people and those places and spaces where we can, by way of his spirit, give rest and promote joy and glory. Frederick Buechner, one of his most quoted lines from, he's in his 90s now, so from a lifetime of writing, one of his most quoted lines is this, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Now that sounds like, when you first hear it, that sounds like it's, it, it means meeting the world's deep hungers will always make you glad. No. <laughs> meeting the world's deep hungers will at times make you mad. And it will sadden you. And it will burden you. And you'll be tired and worn out. And you'll wonder at points, why am I doing this hard thing? When Beekner said the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, he's getting at the change that God works inside out of his people by way of the spirit of Jesus so that our joy is promoted in seeing God work through us for what's good and right and just. We know now in Christ, having met him and following him, now we know we're learning, we're being reminded how to source our deep gladness in seeking God's glory through pouring ourselves out in such a way that others find rest in him and the possibility of reconciliation with him. This is what doing justly promotes the joy of people and the glory of God. There's no other reasons for us to give ourselves to it. Any lesser motivation, we're just being do-gooders. And we will tire of that. We will get bored with that. We will burn out on that. But I think the point of living in Christ is to burn out bright. And to burn out bright by doing justly means that you are, with all that you know in you to respond to all that you know of Jesus, you are attempting to increase the joy of people and the glory of God until he comes. Pray with me. Father, as uh, we look at your son's ministry and how he operated in this context in a synagogue where Isaiah 58 was known and yet its point missed, we can't help but wonder how often is this true of us? And you were patient and kind to us. Lord, in that very passage of Luke 13, as it goes on, you wept over Jerusalem for their opposition to you. You confronted them and you wept over them. And Father, may we be of that kind of heart and mind that even if we feel great anger toward our own nation here, if we feel great anger for those who take to the streets and progressives or conservatives, whatever we get angry at, that we also weep for them, grieve for them, 
not in a self-righteous, superior sense, but because you are changing us. You are conforming us to the image of your Son. And therefore, we don't want to confront people to put them in their place. We want to see people reconciled fully to you and have an interest and a yearning for the flourishing of others so that joy and glory increase and beauty of that is spread. Father, help us. We are full of fears and frustrations and temptations to be preoccupied and distracted and pursue so many other things with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you for being good to us and drawing us to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.